Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hey, I heard you need an inspiration. He's a lot of and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day. Every little thing's gonna be A-OK. everyone. New episodes of Little Known Facts drop every Monday, and you can find them on your favorite podcast provider. Also, if you go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com, you'll find behind-the-scenes photos, videos, and interviews, and lots more on the gallery page. And if you are loving these intimate, candid conversations with all the artists who come on the show, please head over to the contributions page. I depend on these donations to continue to bring you these interviews every week. So if you love the show, please donate. Hey everyone, my guest today is the Academy Award-nominated actress Uma Thurman. Uma became an international movie star playing Mia Wallace in Pulp Fiction, but her illustrious film career includes roles in Nymphomaniac, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, Dangerous Liaison, Henry and June, Kill Bill Volumes 1 and 2, Sweet and Lowdown, Prime, The Producers, and more recently, The War with Grandpa, The House That Jack Built, and The Brits Are Coming. On television, she has starred in Hysterical Blindness, for which she won a Golden Globe Award, Smash, The Slap, and Imposters. She was last seen on the New York stage in the classic stage company production of The Misanthrope. She is now making her Broadway debut in The Parisian Woman. She has been nominated or won every award possible on the planet for her remarkable work. She is a passionate activist for human rights. She's the daughter of the world-famous Buddhist scholar Robert Thurman. She's the mother of three. She lives in New York City. And I'm really thrilled that Uma Thurman is on my podcast today. Hi. Good morning. Good afternoon. What time is it? It's hard to say. <laughs> well, when you're in the theater, you do lose track of time. You're working the night shift. You work the night shift. You work seven days a week. In fact, this week, eight days a week. Because, listeners, I'm not sure when this is going to present itself to you, but Uma is opening this week in her Broadway debut. was so fortunate to see you in The Parisian Woman. And I have to say, as someone who has been in many Broadway plays myself, I literally became my mother during the play and looked at Judy Kuhn, who was my guest, and I said, How did she learn all those lines? Like, I literally Mm. felt like someone who has never done this before because it is um, an extraordinarily powerful and daunting role to take on. Um, And you do it magnificently. But I want to go back a little bit in time to little Uma and kind of get a sense of when you began to fall in love with the performing arts that, that brings you today to the Broadway stage. 
Well, from the time I was very, very little, um, you know, I, I, uh, I, I, for different reasons in my family, I went to a few different schools. So I was a new kid quite a few times. And um, it's like being an army brat. It was kind of like being an academic army brat. And I guess also because I, I grew so tall so early, I was, you know, it took me a long time to kind of settle into my body. So I wasn't very athletic. And I think I, I, undiagnosed because I'm you know, born 1970, you know, I didn't I read right away when other kids read. So memorization, uh, the theater, whatever it was, the school play was a place that I just simply navigated towards. And I think a lot of actors share parts of that. But uh, that was, you know, on the stage being something else, the Christmas tree, I don't know, the family dog. I'm joking. I don't, I don't <laughs> remember what little roles I played in school, but... A lot of people wanted to play the Christmas tree and the family dog, <laughs> and you got the both parts. No, no. Right. So that was from the beginning, you know, and I also think that, you know, if she can see it, she can be it. That whole study and research about women is true. My father's mother, so my paternal grandmother, was who died when I was three, was a stage actress. Was she in New York? She was in New York. Her name was Elizabeth Ferrer, and um, she did a lot of off-Broadway and, and, and stuff and also raised three children herself, so I think she probably had her hands full. But um, You're doing I, the same thing. <laughs> yes, in a way. Um, so, uh, But, you know, I think somehow that being part of my family history probably opened up the possibility to me that this is something I could dream to do. And you had brothers. Yes. I had, well, I have a half-sister who's older than me, who's, who's the um, oldest child of, a, of the, my father's. And then I have three brothers that I, you know, really grew up in a... And where are you in with. the family? I'm the exact middle of those five. I've had a lot of people come on the show who are the children of people who were incredibly successful in their chosen field. Mm -hmm. And your father is not famous for being an actor, but your father was like, and maybe he has grown in his notoriety for being a Buddhist scholar as you've grown also, or maybe you were aware early on that your father was a powerful person in his community. He was always a very powerful person and, you know, a great intellectual force and a very, um, you know, committed philosophical and spiritual man. And were you, as a family, were you were you people who meditated together, or no. was it a more solitary thing for him? Both my parents are are Buddhist, but I, th I remember when I was younger that I guess because they were both raised, uh, you know, in different Christian forms, that they felt strongly that you know that was a sort of something that you chose for yourself, and. Uh, you know, versus the religion that was imposed on them when they grew up. And right. they chose another for themselves as adults. So so it was very much around us. And, you know, we would go on sabbatical with him to India um, when I was younger, twice, once when I was a baby, once when I was 9, 10 years old. Um, so we were, there was a lot of exposure and uh, and so on. But we weren't asked to practice religion with them. Well, it's funny because now, you know, you ask any kid, Growing up, things like mindfulness or meditation or awareness or even Buddhism are words that they'd be really familiar with. I mean, they teach mindfulness in schools now, right? If you're lucky. I, I should go take a class. <laughs> I feel like maybe you could teach a class. Um, but I wonder if when you were growing up, it was much more exotic 
to be a oh, part completely. of this family? And if were you embarrassed? Were you excited? Oh, I wanted to go to church. I, I remember when I was very little begging my mother to take me to church right. um, to be sort of like everyone else. Um, and I think she did, uh, at least one occasion. I don't know. I mean, I guess it's only very brave and rare children, individual children, are happy to be set aside mm-hmm. from whatever the norm the is. The norm is. Yeah. It's not 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 necessarily like the easiest, you know, thing to live on the fringe when you're, you know, it's particularly like in grade school. Yeah. Not great. <laughs> not great. No, and we all had you know, we all have like either Sanskrit or, you know, Tibetan or whatever. All of our names are are you know, for white American kids. We we all were carrying you know, you, you couldn't get past hello without it, right. there being a question about who you were. Because it was exotic. <laughs> My name is, and okay, yeah, it's over already. for you. <laughs> <laughs> or just beginning. What does Uma mean? Well, Uma is an incarnation of Parvati. So uh, she, it, it, the name technically, supposedly means, may she not suffer. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> it, was a nice, it was a nice thought. <laughs> <laughs> they um, did their best. Everybody does. We right? all do our best. We know as a parent, we're just trying. Yeah, we're exactly. Trying to give well, them they, a leg they up. had the good wishes for me from the <laughs> from the onset there. So yeah, it, it, she's 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 a, she's a whole story. She's the mother of Ganesha, who's the great elephant god that you know is the remover of obstacles. Probably one of my favorite of the symbolic gods. But I just imagine you in like third grade, like explaining that. Yeah. <laughs> Be like, we know what an elephant is. Well, apparently my mother tells a funny story. Around eight or so, I think it was so difficult for me that whatever classes I would go to, like ballet or this or that, I would simply tell the teacher that I had another name. And um, like would, Lisa, yeah, or something? yeah. Well, was these are the you know, Charlie's Angels, like Kelly, totally, um, Diana, and um, one of my mother's friends actually came to a dance performance. I don't know why my parents couldn't be there, but you know, she witnessed all the little girls in their ballet re- leotards sitting in a circle and to, about to begin the little performance or the class or whatever. And and the teacher said, Diana, would you close the door? And I just jumped right up and I closed the door. <laughs> Pirouetted back. <laughs> and pirouetted back <laughs> in my moments of happiness. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so I guess I started being other people early on. You know, I just want to make sure that my facts are right, because I've spent a lot of time on the Internet with you these last few days trying mm-hmm. to kind of figure out a little bit of the the arc of your story. And it sounded like you came to New York really young. Yes, I came to New York between, well, I've, we used to visit New York from Massachusetts, where I grew up. And was your dad's family still here? Both my father's parents died when, uh, when well, his father died when he was young. His okay. mother died when I was a child, a young, you know, toddler. And um, my mother's also died early, so I didn't grow up with grandparents. Or cousins or? Not, not really. I okay. have one cousin who I've gotten to know best But would you come see theater when you came, or was that a part of, like, the family trip when you would come to the city? No, we didn't go to the theater um, much. I did see some theater at Amherst College uh, as a faculty brat there. I remember the stage there. And I was also taken to Indian music concerts and all kinds of things. So I saw some performing arts as a young person, but, but they were quite heavily, you know, into their academic mission, not into so much, like, you know, but that Fun. must have been incredibly intense to have parents who, who, as you just stated, their mission was academic and to feel like you were struggling with things that were very simple for other kids, like reading, or you perceived as easier for other kids. I'm sure that was really intense. It was intense. 
when I really put my mind back to it. I mean, I, I do th think I'm pretty sure that I didn't really read a word book by myself until I was like nine. You know, I remember I remember doing it. It was so exciting. Um, I was going to school in Smith College Campus School at the time in Northampton. And, and something connected. But yeah, it just sort of eventually, dyslexics aren't incapable of reading. Right. It just takes them a lot longer. Right. But you had nobody <laughs> guiding you or kind of helping you At understand. At that time, they didn't really have the diagnostic awareness and skills. Although I do remember being taken aside and specially tested when I was like in very, very early, maybe first or second grade. And I think actually my mother saved me by telling me the results because um, I wasn't even getting that I didn't um, you know, I was in denial or I was a kid, you sure. know, understanding about why, you know, there'd be four groups of kids in the study groups and I'd be in like this group that like, really wasn't doing very much at all. And um, I, I w wasn't quite sure why, because I, I, my relationship to words was very strong, mm -hmm. but I, my relationships to these squiggles on the paper was not very strong. Right. There was a disconnect. There's a, there was a big disconnect. But she did me this great favor, though, because they did test me in uh, in, the, in those early days. And um, she told me that in certain logistic ways, like certain types of thinking, um, logic, uh, strategy, I don't even remember what the terminologies were, that I was very, very advanced. And not that I feel advanced right now. I didn't, you know, even go to college. But being told I was smart in any way was really helpful. So when you say you remember suddenly the squiggly lines becoming words that you could read, do you think that you figured out whatever the puzzle was as a dyslexic? Or why do you think that happened? Do well, you know? I mean, honestly, there's scientific information about that now. Yeah. Um, and there's different theories. And, and, and I'm sure there's even more advanced since the last time I looked into it, which was about 10 or 15 years. But I was quite astonished when I when I heard, when I learned about modern understanding of dyslexia. And in fact, it was only then that I was actually 100% sure, oh, that's what it was. One of my children was dyslexic. and um, So you're looking it, into it because I as discovered a parent through, at that point. Yeah, as, a, as a parent, I was taking the steps to try to understand um, how to help my child. And through that process, uh, you know, in a very privileged way, uh, you know, good doctors mm -hmm. and stuff, um, as I answered these questions and so on, I was like, oh, <laughs> that's what it was. My youngest brother to me, I think, who's uh, eight years younger, when he was in school, they did know. And he received an extraordinary amount of extra support for that because they knew how to do it then, right, eight right. years later. So when you came to New York, how did that happen as a young person what brought you? Well, I wanted to go to New York, and I, I i don't know how I had the gumption to think that I would be able to be an actress. I came to New York with a girlfriend for summer break, and... How and old are you at this time? Fifteen, I think, fifteen. Okay. And then my mom came, and uh, we she took me around to, you know, to meet some different agents because she thought I could do a little bit of modeling just because I was tall. Had you done that before at no, all? No, no, no. Not one bit. And it, it didn't last very long because I, I wasn't exactly, like, you know, the right type. Um, just tall. That was the only thing I had going. But, um, but I was very fortunate. I actually met a man named Alan Mandel 
And he was starting, he had a modeling agency, but he was starting an acting agency. So his modeling agency was called Click and his acting agency was called Flick. And when he clever, met me, clever very man. clever man, yeah. um, he's, he still works in the industry, he's a manager. So when he met me, I, he sat this 15-year-old, and I'm sure many 15-year-olds were put in front of him, and he said, so you want to be a model? I said, no, 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 I want to be an actress, but I need to figure out how to do, get going. And he said, oh, that's good, because um, I want to represent actresses. Um, then he moved from the click to the flick desk. Come with me. Pretty quickly. <laughs> pretty quickly. Um, what actually happened, I stayed in New York that summer. With this friend's family? Yes. I stayed in a friend's apartment. And they, they went on holiday at one point, And I was, then I, I rented a room for like a month. By yourself? Yes. There was another renter in the apartment. Very nice guy. He was a law student. But anyway, they let me stay there. And um, through Alan, he found me an acting teacher. Um, and I started to take acting lessons, and then I went back to boarding school, and I got the lead role in the play, which for a sophomore was really good. At that point, I could read very well, yes. and, and was in love with the, like you know the English language. And, That's awesome. And uh, <laughs> do you remember what the play was? Yes, of course, it was The Crucible. Um, so I got the role of Abigail, which was a real coup. And then they drove up from New York to see me in it, and. At that point, they said, well, if you come back to New York again, if your parents will let you, we'll start sending you on auditions and all that. And I think I had my first role within a few months. So you left high school. I keep... I transferred to um, professional children's oh, school. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And did you live in that room again in your friend's no, apartment? No, no. My mom helped me find a small studio apartment next to PCS, which was the professional children's school. So... Then I had my own apartment. I'm harping on this because I have a daughter. You have a how old is your daughter? She's 19. Okay, so my daughter is 14. She just started ninth grade, mm-hmm. and she's also like a. Very... I have a little daughter too, by the way. Yes, <laughs> but she's not on her own yet, no, acting no, in a she's studio. Five. But just like really taking in. Sometimes it's hard to kind of place something, the reality of something, but really imagining like my daughter next summer coming to New York by herself. Well, my mother would say that I was very independent. That's what she would say. And she was right. <laughs> and she was right. Everyone does the best they can. Exactly. You know? And both my parents, you know, had a lot of freedom and individuality when they were, you know, inordinately young. Mm-hmm. Um, my mother herself left Sweden, I think, when she was 15 or 16 by herself. But you were kind of parenting yourself for the last few years of your of your teens. You could say that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's but in the I'm memoir. I'm very close with my parents and, you know, but that is true. So you begin. And it's kind of extraordinary to think about it. I've had like Ben Platt and Lucas Hedges and these very young actors who are in, I don't know, 19, early 20s and sort of what it is to deal with the fame that comes to people now and in the world of social media and sort of all the ways in which it's very different for these young actors coming up. I can't even imagine the difference. You know, um, like my daughter is turning into a rapidly rising star at 19. And to see what, you know, how they go about it now, young actors, the way they self-tape themselves and, you know, they pick their own the best take mm-hmm. to send, you know, that is all so incredible. Like, you know, that is just, I've, I think it's going to change probably acting a lot, but... What do you mean? Well, I, I mean, the, the whole world was so different when... I was younger, and I mean, I even went through a, a big phase in my 20s where I didn't even watch the films 
that I made very often because I didn't know if it was constructive. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to be extremely process-based and and not self-conscious. And so I didn't, you know, I didn't really watch daily. You weren't even allowed, to, a lot of directors didn't even allow you to watch what we called, I'm sure your listeners are perfectly versed in all this terminology because of your show, but, you know, the dailies is the showing of the footage. And a lot of directors wouldn't even, you know, allow or encourage um, the actors to review the material. Right, but now they're standing there and there's playback right away and it's really hard to avoid it even if you it's don't want to see world. yourself. It's yeah. just a different world. And, and um, so sort of learning acting from the inside out without seeing what it looks like. It's just such a different journey. I mean, no wonder she's such a better actress than I was when I was her age. <laughs> she really knows what she's, she sees, what she's doing. Right. It's kind of funny in a way. I don't know. I I, I like to put my um, my hopes on the side of positive when it comes to change. Was there any part of you that wanted her to wait of to course. begin? And so yeah. she won. She won the battle too. She she did, and then she's being proven right. So that's all I want. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you were working in your teens. What was the first role that you got? The first role I got was in a tiny uh, independent film. It was called Rose by Any Other Name, and it was pretty quickly, and it was like, as, at the, I can't remember if it was like a $50,000 budget. It was, it was even then, it was a real shoestring mm-hmm. production, um, which in a way was kind of great. I mean, certainly I, I was had no idea what I was doing, but I was also learning how to do my own continuity and my own makeup and putting together my own costumes from my own wardrobe. Sure. um, So in a way, like, it was kind of an interesting start to make a small independent film like that. So between A Rose by Any Other... They renamed it Kiss Daddy Goodnight because it sounded more salacious. Great. Um, But it was originally called A Rose by Any Other Name. So between Kiss Daddy Goodnight and Pulp Fiction... Yes. Well, between that... I think probably, I think the second I did a, I did a, I did a kind of Brat Pack movie of the time called Johnny Be Good mm-hmm. with Robert Johnny Jr. and Anthony Michael Hall and. Um, and did you start collecting a community of your own of acting friends or through class or through these films? Did you feel like okay now I have my friend group? Not really, not because I wouldn't have wanted to, but you know, I mean this is I'm totally proud of my age so but so the truth is this is in it I mean we didn't have cell phones so you just you know you'd you'd go to you know I turned 18 so just chronologically after the Brat Pack movie I made uh I met Terry Gilliam and then you know while auditioning for all kinds of things that I didn't get but um and then Terry Gilliam cast me in the adventures of Baron Munchausen and so I was 17 years old when I went off to um, Italy for like six months wow. uh, by myself, mostly. And uh, But it was that job, because I think I was kind of playing hooky um, in a way, you know, even though I was enrolled and stuff and sending in my papers. My father would often help me type them out when I'd go home for a holiday. That job in Chinichita with John Neville and... Jonathan Price and the young Sarah Pauly, who was just a baby, and uh, Alison Steadman, and you know the great English and uh, what a great troop! And, yeah, incredible troop. And in, and Terry Gilliam, who was at the time probably like one of my favorite directors of films that I'd seen so far in my life at that point. 
that was like the pivotal time where I kind of I looked out at this what this kind of auteur based cinema was and I realized that's what I wanted to do. And when you look back to how Terry directed, what are some of the things that come to mind about what made him so special to work with, what makes his film so magical? He's simply has a sort of like I mean, he's a magical visionary artist, you know. I mean he really is an artist. I mean, I think there's great directing and there's all different kinds of directing. In fact, that's one of the things I find fascinating with directors. But, I mean, Terry Gilliam is sort of, you know, he started off as an animator or whatever you call it, whatever that is. <laughs> but um, but he's, he's truly like, a, you know, he's a visionary um, and film is his medium. Right. And he's just creating all these elaborate, gorgeous pictures as well as... Building Inhabiting the world with, he's with world, humans. He's a yeah. world builder, yes. So that was a great experience to begin on with someone like that. It was really quite something to be exposed to. And I was a big fan of Brazil and, you know, and, 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 and some of his other work. And, of course, having three brothers, the Python stuff I was very familiar with. Right. Um, I, feel, I don't know why, but I feel like as a kid that was more a boy thing, but I liked it. So did you audition for Pulp Fiction? Uh Yes. I assume you didn't know him, Quentin Tarantino before you did that film. I didn't. And uh, it started out, apparently, I don't think he really knew who I was other than maybe that girl that was in, because then I'd already done Les Liaisons Dangereuses, mm-hmm. and I'd also done a film with John Borman called Where the Heart Is. So there actually, was a young rising star in his orbit that he'd heard of and I, maybe seen. I'm pretty sure he told me that he didn't want to meet me and that my agent Thank at you. the time, Thank which you. is fine, <laughs> um, he didn't want to meet me and that I think Jay Maloney, who was my agent at Creative Artist at the time, he somehow just kind of like hoodwinked it where he just sort of sent a message to Quentin that the that the meeting was set. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I'd be at the Ivy at 8 o'clock, and, and Quentin was like, oh, well. I, I, and we, I, I'd have to check that with Quentin, but I'm pretty sure I remember correctly. And we sat down and um, just started talking, and the conversation has gone on and off but continued for some decades. And had you read the script yet when you met him? I'm trying to remember. I certainly knew what the part was, but... I think, I feel like I was, I know I was unprepared for the meeting, so I was doing everything I could do to talk about life and cinema without really having to be pressed on content or delivery. Always, kids at home, always a smart <laughs> tactic. Right. <laughs> Look over here. Oh, we yeah, nothing but, to see here. <laughs> or, or I guess as John Oliver just recently coined the term, or if, if he coined it, whataboutism. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yes, the script is interesting, but what yes. about... <laughs> By the way, have you had the clams? They're delicious. I feel like it's no secret that that character has become really an iconic, iconic film character. And her look, you know, once you become like a Halloween costume, like, you know, there yeah. is something that is resonated. Well, I take a lot of pride in that because I, I very, my fingerprints are very much on creating that. Like Quentin wanted me to be blonde. And I was like, no, I don't want her to be blonde. I want her to like have this sort of Louise Brooksy kind of uh, hair and um, you know, even the flare to the pan. I mean, we get down to the details, right? And when you start to like get into that sort of stuff. But we always actually really worked very well together with um, creating pictures. So you're in your early 20s at that point? Yeah. 
I'm trying to, I think the timeline is, I think we shot that in 92. So you're still like a baby. Pretty in terms much. Of, right? And yet you had this clarity. This character looks like this. I feel like she would sound like this. Everything, her dark mouth, her dark nails. Although, because, I mean, Quentin's a guy. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, he's not going to, like, argue with me about nail polish. R- probably didn't care. <laughs> I think he just liked it. It's like, yeah. yeah, okay. That seems good. Yeah. I like that. Okay, okay, okay. That sounds good. Obviously, the look of that character and the takeaway for anyone, even if you have Alzheimer's, I feel like I will have Alzheimer's and remember the dancing scene with John Travolta. Like, that will be one of my memories in life. Me too. Yeah? You know, I mean, that was actually... I mean, going off of my sort of feeling of awkwardness that I did have, like, I was terrified of the dance scene. I was like, I can't dance. Even though I did dance, like, dance classes when I was younger. Diana did close the door in an early ballet class. <laughs> Diana <and> did. <laughs> but, but now Uma was But I didn't this. like to dance in front of people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm tall. I was, like, uncomfortable. And um, and it was John Travolta. Yes. Okay. And I went. His to reputation see, preceded I, him. I went to see Saturday Night uh, <laughs> Fever when I was a kid. I remember sneaking into the movie theater with my brother. Um, so you know, I was really terrified. And um, and actually, that was a it was a great moment in my and just um, aside from what happened, the results were um, in my life and process. Like, I didn't want to stop dancing once I started. Can you imagine? Can yeah. you imagine how that, beautiful that, that, that was is? the beginning of that. So Yeah. Was that a, a choreographed rehearsal or is that something that was pretty improvised? Um well Quentin had two references. One was an Aristocats reference, the animated Aristocats, and the other was from a Godard film. Um By the way, you'll never hear that sentence again. The Aristocats? A Godard film. That's what's so great about him. <laughs> but um and then I mean, I remember then we were just, I think we were in, the, we all had very little, little grubby trailers. You know, that film wasn't a big, huge budget movie. Right. Um, and we were in maybe John's trailer, I don't know. And, you know, John, of course, and Quentin, they all knew the names of those like 50s dances, I guess, right? You know, the Batman, the swim, the this, the that. Basically, like they just sort of showed me like, oh, we're going to do, let's do this and let's do that. And of course, the twist was going to be involved. And so there was just, a, and then we decided there was just a little lineup. Okay, we'll, we'll both do this, and then you do the swim, and I'll do the swim, and you do the Batman, and I'll do the Batman, and and you know, and then we just did it. And music was really playing. Yes, yes. I mean, it's a very famous story, but I think it's I mean, that Quentin did the, some of the handheld camera work himself. But he got so into dancing that the camera was dancing as well as the dancers. And when we see the final cut, is that like that? Or did they figure out how to like... I don't know. Imagine. No, no. They, I think there was some other footage taken. But um, I don't know. have to ask him. That's cool. So that changes everything. Then you're like in a stunning yellow dress at Cannes and, and it's beginning, right? Like this idea of my life is not exactly my own anymore. I mean, even without Snapchat or Twitter and all that stuff, you became That started very earlier, rec- though. You were recognizable. That started really with Liaison. I was slightly recognizable before Liaison. But people couldn't quite get my name right. The first time I was ever asked for my autograph, these two young girls came over all excited. And, and they said, are you, are you, are you Uni Thirsty? Yeah, yeah. And I was like, yeah, one love, man. <laughs> I like this. I, I guess I'm Uni Thirsty. From now on. From now on. And I, I don't know if I signed Uni Thirsty, but. Um, I hope so. Uh, but, 
But uh, anyway, um, yeah. So that that it's that started then to get. I that that was. A, I was already dealing with quite a lot of that from seventeen, eighteen. For someone who it sounds like was shy and was looking for a career that sort of allowed you to embody all these other people. How was that for you? And how is that for you? Well, what was difficult was, you know, I knew I knew that, well, you know, pigeonholing was maybe worse then than it is today. You yeah. know, as far as like, you know, color by number, that's who you are and that's all you're going to get to be. Um, and I was very, very aware of it. And especially as a young woman and especially as a young woman who would be considered, you know, not no one would care about whether I could act or not. Mm. And probably not necessarily cast me in roles where there'd be much acting to do. And I didn't want to let that happen to me. Um, so I turned down lots of very big ticket items to be like a young siren. Because um, I knew that I'd just be done for. It's like, right. okay, here's a huge movie and they're offering you all this money, but, you know... But don't do that. Go do this and don't get paid. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Keep keep trying to keep trying to fish for, for the fish you want, mm-hmm. not for the fish you get. And is the black wig and sort of the Louise Brooks, I mean, you were able to put a new stamp on something completely then, right? Like that's the opposite of the sort of Botticelli girl coming out of well, a I think that's shell. one of the reasons that really kick started my career and um, in another way, I swear to God, it's, I just didn't look like that girl. I, I, I was another person that people like actually looked at, like, oh, you know, someone's an actress. So, how do you hold on to yourself when a lot of strangers think they know you? Um, well, it's too bad more of them don't. <laughs> Far less lonely. <laughs> um, <laughs> you want to know? You want an autograph? Let me spend twenty minutes with you, really telling you about me. Could yeah, you imagine? Come home with me, so I don't have to sit alone in the kitchen. <laughs> oh, um, just kidding. Kinda, yes, kind of. I. Re- but um, <laughs> you never have to leave this booth. You can go from <laughs> podcast to theater, back to the booth. It sounds great, but yeah. I think people would get really bored. Maybe. Maybe. I, I can't imagine that at all. I don't know. I mean, I remember. I don't know. I, I I don't want to actually quote it wrongly, but two famous actors, very, very famous actors, were making a legendary huge film once. And one of them said to the other, you've been famous three times longer than you were ever a human being. How do you know anything at all about what life is like for other people? You know, I would say who those two actors are, but I don't want to mess up the story at all. I, I like my details to tight. I appreciate but, that. But um yeah, you know, so yeah, I started as a teenager and I I mean, I think first of all, there's no point in me weighing in what was good or bad about it because it's just what it was. And in a way, I'm what I'm most grateful for is that you know, here I am decades later and I do love what I do. I love to act. I mean, I really get a great pleasure out of it. Obviously, some of the side effects, you know, you're your career, its status, your struggle to kind of get the kind of work you want, you know, and then everything else life does to you, you know. Of course, that that stuff is challenging, but I do love what I do. So I feel grateful 
that I've had time to practice. I think that's a perfect way to lead up to this play that you decided to do. How exciting to do this for decades and and get to do something new, which is to make a debut mm-hmm. is an exciting thing as a grown-up person. It's just so wonderful. Um, I've enjoyed it. I mean, it's the most hard work I've done in quite a while. I um, imagine you've been offered other plays in... in not really, no. No, no. Um, uh, the misanthrope wasn't very well, wasn't you know exceptionally well received. Although it was in rhyming couplets, I mean, I couldn't have picked something more difficult, right? Um, but uh, but I just wanted to try, you know. And also, as a new mother at the time, um, I had my eldest child was just a baby, and so that's all as you know yourself. That's a very overwhelming moment in your life. Like, mm-hmm. oh my God, I have this baby. It's full time. Uh, it's an enormous responsibility. How do I work? You know, in the, in the, the beginning of that is always a very sensitive time. Um, but uh, and you have a little person now again. Yes, but she's not an infant. Right. I mean, when I did the first play, I was nursing. Literally. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I mean, and sobbing. I was nursing. <laughs> That's so what I remember nursing. Um, so I'm not nursing, which Good. is a really great Good. thing. But um, anyway. Uh, I've been, I've enjoyed it so much. I've had this incredible. It's a real gift. Um, I was introduced through my attorney to Pamela McKinnon to take a general meeting. She's um, a magnificent theater director. She's a magnificent theater director. She's a magnificent human, um, and she probably could direct other things magnificently too. Um, she's very gifted. And uh, so we go for a general meeting and um, really just because he thought we'd get along. And I just was talking to her about, you know, how I could – what her thoughts were about how I could try to approach finding a way to get on the stage You'd again. You'd been thinking about oh, it. For, oh, yeah, for years. Always. Um, it wasn't – there was just no opportunity for me to bat away. Um, you know, it, I was going to have to figure it out. I did have – uh, I had a long time to think about it, so I did have like a dream scenario. I had had thought to myself, having seen a lot of different theater work, that a new play would be a good way for me to recommence um, my approach to taking my work onto the stage and making those adaptations and figuring out, you know, trying to make that mathematical shift. Do you feel like that's a different approach than film work? Well, it's kind of exactly the same, except one, you really work in depth with other people uh, in a way that you just never, ever get to. Right. There's no luxury of that on film. There's no luxury of that on film. And and so many, which is why I think sometimes, a lot of times my work would be better when I had it, like someone, a coach or a dialect coach, or when I worked with someone so that I had someone to prepare with. Sure. And, uh, you know, it just makes a difference than what you alone in your living room. I mean, there are several films that I've done in time, like, you know, I remember back through the history where people would do some sort of reasonable rehearsal of films, um, but very often really very little. And I think also as you get older in your career as an actor, you are being cast because you are a professional so that no one needs to take the time to get you to deliver something that they're going to want. Right. Um, so it's like, bring, bring okay. us bring us something. Thank you. Okay. Can um, you help me get a running start? I'd really appreciate it. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, you know. It's, but it's true. It's what it is. So getting back to this 
real process um, uh, and really getting to break down character and moments and dynamics between characters in, in you know this profoundly psychoanalytic and thoughtful and physical way has been a, just a true joy because it's kind of like everything I love about what the the work and none of the noise. And what about this play, The Parisian Woman, specifically made you think, this is the one. I think I can do this, and this is why I want to do this. Well, at the end of my general meeting with Pam, you know, we had a really nice time, and I said to her, well, you know, if if you think of anything that you think maybe would be an interesting piece of material for me to read or you hear about anything, you have any ideas or... If you need anyone to do a reading or whatever, just let me know, you know. Um, thank you so much for meeting. And then she said, uh, well, I have something I have, I've, I've been working on with a writer. I'd love you to look at it. And so, you know, X days, minutes, weeks later, I get the Parisian woman. And it's then state, which was before the election. So it was kind of the same play and kind of a totally different play. Mm-hmm. Um, it was about Washington. It was about all those five characters existed, but they've basically been reborn. Chloe's actions were quite similar. You're Chloe. I am Chloe. But uh, when I read it, first of all, I found it incredibly enjoyable and um, sort of wicked and, and funny in a very sort of biting way. But she's a very strong um, character and, you know, passionate complicated and confident and I you know it's just like kind of like a no-brainer to me like well if I had sent a letter to Santa or God saying could I please get to do a new piece of writing by a writer who I love with an extraordinary director and and in fact her being female was part of the dream (laughs) um not that I have anything against anyone else I just I had a feeling that that would be really a interesting. great collaborator. A great collaborator, especially on such an interesting, complicated, sexual character mm-hmm. um, as this. To be able to see that with another woman, uh, just it's a, just a different thing than trying to communicate about that with a man. Mm-hmm. And not to say that all men can't do that. I'm not saying that, but it it's a it is a. I think this is a perfect. It was just my dream. It was a no brainer. It was like okay, well here it is. And then, you know, we went about a kind of long process of preparing to do it, and it's taken several years. And, uh, and then, of course, the election happened in the middle. The whole play could have just become irrelevant until, of course, Bo Willman dove in there and, and um, reinvented it a bit, reinvented it and made it more relevant. Were you undaunted by the size of the part and what it would be to learn it and to do it? And how did you learn that part in all seriousness? How long did you spend working on it? Well, it changed a lot. We did several readings of it. Um, and, uh, and of course, the play changed a lot. I was afraid before rehearsal that there was a chance it might change more because mm-hmm. it is a new play, mm-hmm. and actually that is not uncommon. Right. Even if it weren't about, you know, modern-day, present-day Washington, which, as we all know, is apocalyptic. Keeping You couldn't cement this role. It's not like it's Miss Julie and those are the mm-hmm. words. So you could learn it two years before you plan to do the production. Right. If you weren't now too old for the part, yes. um, but um, I, I'm doing Mrs. Julie, and I'm really excited about that, Madame, Madame Julie. <laughs> exactly. um, <laughs> they just changed it a little bit. Yeah, just, just change the play just a little bit. <laughs> I mean, th- that's one of the things that's so fantastic about um, 
being an actor is, is it does require your it's good for the brain you know the brain is a muscle and it needs to be used and it needs to be treated like the inventive soft material that it is mm -hmm. um you don't want calcification inside of the skull no, I do not. <laughs> I don't want calcification really in any teeth, part of okay. me. <laughs> I guess I guess is they're super white. Well, it really is um it is a really compelling piece of theater. It also is really interesting to think about, you know, most of us live in a marriage with an understanding of what the rules are mm -hmm. in a marriage and it was very interesting to see without giving too much away, a couple who live by their own rules and I admire that. It's very interesting. In fact, all of the relationships, I mean, as much as there's a lot of humor that is sort of like painfully earned mm -hmm. in the audience just because, you know, about how crazy our political system has gotten as if we thought it couldn't get crazier. So there's there's that sort of humor, but there's a real a serious amount of subtlety and complexity in, in these human relationships between these five people. Many of them are not conventional or what we call conventional. Well, it really is an opportunity for us to get some relief, some comic relief and, and a release from the pent-up emotion that we all have as we continue to wake up every morning and see, oh, he's still the president. One of the things that I find so interesting about the audiences is I have quite a few friends who are pretty good and decent Republicans, good people. And they love the play because they're in pain too. Uh, you know, it's not like it's a, it's not, it's not about one-sidedness, uh, you know. Well, at its best, it's not. Yeah. At its best, it's not. And uh, it's, it's, it's sort of about our society at the moment and kind of about the sort of up for grabs nature of what anything means, you Do know? Do you feel scared as a public person who has lent your name? I mean, I support Room to Grow, an mm -hmm. organization in New York that helps uh, mothers in, living below a certain economic line. I know, and I, <laughs> I, get, I, get, I get emails from you. You didn't even know you were writing me about things. It's, it's just a wonderful place. It's a store where new mothers who don't have a lot of means can come and really get set up for their yes, new children. without and, having to pay for anything. That's right. And yes. it's, but it feels like a shopping experience, and it's just filled with dignity, and, the, and Room to Grow is a beautiful facility, and it's kind of a remarkable place. It's easy to put one's name to something like that, right? There's no risk involved. Do you get nervous ever of, as a public person and as a famous person, attaching your name to a point of view? Um, do I get nervous is the first half of that question. And it could stop right there. Mm -hmm. Of course I get nervous. Mm -hmm. I'm not nervous about the questions that this play investigates. I think if we stop asking questions, if we stop having a kind of um, human response, you know, that's why, you know, I, 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 I hug my Republican friends who come to this play, and one of whom said that he felt politely and adequately offended, um, <laughs> but really more because he's unhappy with his representation sure. um, versus lack of it. Um, so, you know, I, you know, I think that America, Constitution, 
was probably one of the best efforts made by mankind to try to create a fair and decent society. You know, our legal system is supposed to represent the strong, the wealthy, and the and and the less wealthy or poor. You know, th this country was designed with ideals, ideals that are worth fighting for. They are they must be fought for against anyone trying to undermine them because you know we had some very good ideas here they may need to be adapted in different ways and and, and modern life is changing how things happen but i i think that america was is the american dream is is a dream but you must keep some dreaming alive to be able to reinvent a good world well i vote for you <laughs> I'm very excited. Well, I uh, Thurman 2020, please. I didn't make it past hello. I just want to ask you before you go because I feel like you would appear to be someone who others would imagine has a very successful life. And I wonder for you how you would define success for yourself. That's an intense question. Um I define success by the plasticity of my brain um, and the ability to learn, the ability to heal, to love, to forgive, and to struggle. If, you know, those, I'm probably missing, I've only got five fingers up, I should probably have five more, but I think those things, as long as those things are happening in my life, Learning, struggling, loving, healing. I don't know, I missed the fifth one. It mustn't have been important. We'll have it on playback. <laughs> Uma Thurman, thank you so much for being here today. I'm just so thrilled to have had you. So thank you for coming on the podcast. It was great. Clouds can make the wind blow. If you want more information about my guests, go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com. I also wanted to tell you that there is now a new addition to the website. It is a button that says contributions. This podcast is a true labor of love, and I really, really want to keep doing it for a long time. So if you like listening as much as I love to do it, please feel free to contribute. It would mean the world to me. Also, on Twitter, you can find me at Alana Levine. Instagram is Little Known Facts Podcast, and on Facebook, Little Known Facts Podcast. You can also feel free to rate and review the show on the iTunes show page. This podcast is recorded at Hangar Studios in New York City. This episode was brought to you by Pro Media. Located in Times Square, Pro Media offers both production and post production services out of its beautiful studios in the heart of New York City. Pro Media Sound Vision. Find out more at promedia.nyc. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger. For the ones who get it done.